Welcome to the Conscious Diva podcast. I'm Tatiana and joining me in this episode is author and renowned menstrual educator, Sinu Joseph. You heard that right, menstrual educator. Uh, you might be wondering, how is menstruation a spiritual topic? Well, I will explain. A few months ago, I attended a talk by Sinu on her book, Ritu Vidya, Ancient Science Behind Menstrual Practices. And I have to say, this is a brilliant and empowering book, very well researched, super informative. And although this book is aimed at Indian or Hindu women, it is totally accessible for non-Indians and non-Hindus. And for this reason, I invited Sinu to be a guest to talk about menstrual practices. In this episode, we specifically talk about prana and why entering temples and chanting mantras is a no-no during menstruation. I was personally surprised by the answers, particularly on the breakdown of chanting Om and the very specific ways women of menstruating age should pronounce Om. We also talk about Ayurveda and how your dosha plays a part in how you experience your period. Menstruation is also a natural panchakarma practice. I had no idea. And if you have no idea what any of that means, no worries, because we break it down in this episode. This was an eye-opening read for me. And I hope it is a mind-opening experience for you. Thank you for listening. I love your book. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I wanted to start with discussing the book in reverse because, I mean, gosh, it's, it's such a big book and there's so, so much in here. And it was incredibly fascinating and just so interesting. I mean, God, as for me, I've I've had a long time uh, tantric practice that uh, more recently has evolved into a Nepalese shamanic practice because of the two uh, are, are quite similar in, in terms of deities and the rituals and practices and yantras and things like this. But also, uh, in, interestingly, what I what I have found is even as sampradayas. So when I was reading your book, I was just, it was so intriguing on many, many levels, but also having an understanding of the terminology and uh, experience with temples myself in across India, not just in South India, but also in Nepal, uh, I could understand and, and completely uh, relate to what you were sharing in this book, uh, and which is why I wanted to start uh, in reverse <laughs> from the back sure. to the back <laughs> half, uh, and then you know come forward and and then see how we go for time. So sure. Uh, well, let's just start with what is the name of your book? How do you correctly pronounce it? And what does this mean? This title. Yeah, that's. I think that's the perfect way to start. <laughs> so the book is called Rutu Vidya. And uh, Rutu is a word in uh, Sanskritam, the language Sanskrit, as we say in English, which uh, means seasons. And it also means menstruation. And that itself is not a coincidence. <laughs> uh, the reason the same word is used for the seasons of Mother Nature and the seasons within our body is because there is a close connection between the two. So in Sanskritam, the minute you say Rutu, it refers to both these things, the inner and the outer season. And the second word is Vidya. Vidya represents and means knowledge. So Rutu Vidya is that knowledge about the seasons and how that connects to the woman's cycles, her internal seasons. So that's the name of the book and that's what it means. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, thank you for also uh, explaining how to pronounce uh, Ritu because it's spelled on the cover R-T-U. Uh, yeah. so you, you miss the, uh, as a Westerner, and, and as you also explain in your book, there's a lot of translations that in Sanskrit just don't, they really do not, they're more like phrases versus individual words that we can translate into an English spoken word. True, true. Yeah. So, oh my gosh, I, I was like, where do I start? I mean, far out. I the, the biggest, there were so many takeaways in this for me with prana, with Ayurveda, with the chakra system, with, you know, the seasons, as you mentioned, uh, going into the temples, uh, mantra practice, how, how chanting mantra can affect our bodies during this time. So there, <laughs> it's just, there was just so much that I was like, whoa. But firstly, I think obviously this book was your intention was originally written for Indian women, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding was it was originally 
uh, your intention for Indian women to understand and the modern Indian woman to understand what's happening in with rural Indian women. Is that correct? Well, uh, partly correct. So the reason why it looks like there is so much information about a variety of topics is because all of these topics and whatever is covered in the book is not mere theory. Mm. These are practices followed by Indian women even today except for the minority of urban women who you know probably left the country and studied outside the country most of the indian women living in india follow these practices and that is why they came into being so it um, happened as a result of my sessions and workshops with women across india so during these interactions and sessions these were the questions they would ask they would ask if it is okay to go to the temple during their period and if, if not why uh, is it okay to chant certain mantras and if not why uh, what should we eat what should we not eat why are these rules in existence so everything that is there in this book is compiled from the actual questions asked by women in india so to indian women who are reading this it doesn't seem like much in fact they will ask me 10 other questions which i haven't mentioned in this book <laughs> <laughs> but i can understand that if you're not familiar with those practices uh, being from india or being a hindu woman it would seem a little overwhelming but uh, these are all very much in practice even today and that's why it became uh, important to write about all of this <laughs> yes. well i think it is important to write about it and and i think there's a lot of takeaway for western women and a lot, particularly because in the West, I think we've been experiencing over the last several decades, a, a you know, an explosion of yoga and other spiritual traditions. And so people are becoming are much more familiar with the term mantra. Uh, I would say almost everybody is familiar with OM. And, you, you know, it's become uh, almost like a trendy as a symbol. You can see it printed on T-shirts and all kinds of things, stickers, bumper car stickers and, you know, whatever. You don't even have to be in India uh, to, to see the symbol on, you know, written on something. Right. So let's start with let's start with explaining this mantra om because i found it so fascinating how uh there were two very specific pronunciations and you explain uh one can be chanted during menstruation and one cannot uh so i'd love for you to break this down and then pronounce both of them uh, so people can understand and hear the difference in in the two and uh, and explain how it affects the body well, um, just a small correction. I have not mentioned that a particular type of mantra can be chanted during menstruation. It, me it meant that it can be chanted by women of menstrual age, but not while menstruating. Ah, <laughs> okay. So because there's no mantra that should be chanted while menstruating. And the reason for that is because menstruation is a process that channelizes prana towards the lower part of the body, towards the lower chakras. And any mantra that you chant will either impact the lower chakras, in which case you will bleed more because it gets triggered further, or the mantra that you chant will carry prana upwards, in which case it forces the direction of prana in an opposite way. And that could hinder menstruation, cause you menstrual cramps and so on. So mm -hmm. whatever the mantra it is I'm going not to, to be chanted really during quickly. menstruation. I, yeah. I'm so sorry, uh, Sinu. I'm going to interrupt you quickly because you, you and I understand what prana is, and there might be some listeners who don't who don't understand who don't know what prana is. Could could you just backtrack and slowly explain what prana is and how this affects sure. what you've just described? Thank you. Well, okay. So let me just give a very very simple understanding of prana. So in the Indian knowledge systems and also in you know the Japanese um, sciences or the Chinese sciences we understood that there is a subtle life force that governs everything we see in the manifest world. So we Indians call it prana, the Chinese call it chi, the Japanese call it ki, but it's a fundamental, a similar fundamental understanding that there is this life force that you cannot see, but you can experience. And upon this life force rests everything else. But just to make it easier to understand, in the Western science, we understand gravitational force. 
right? We can't see it, but we know it exists because anything you throw up comes down. And it's a reason why we are not both floating and we are seated where we are. So there is something called gravity. There is gravitational force, but we can't see it. Now, in the Indian sciences, in the Vedas, there is the saying, yatha brahmande tatha pinde, which means everything that is in the macrocosm also exists in the microcosm, which is your body. So if there is a gravitational force outside your body, there must be an equivalent one within your body as well. And within the body, there is prana, which is of five types. And one of the subtypes of prana is the downward moving prana, which is the body's gravitational force known as apana. And this downward moving body's gravitational force is what regulates menstrual flow, natural birthing of a baby, you know, the removal of bodily waste, urination, defecation. For men, the release of semen. How does all of this happen downwards and outwards? It is because the body has a natural gravitational force. And that is a version of prana, which we call apana. So that's what prana is. So anything that we do, whether it is in the physical realm or in the spiritual realm, impacts prana. In our sciences, all our foundational understanding was based on how these things impact prana. And if we knew that, we made so many rules because, well, we knew the subtle. <laughs> we knew how things that you can't see function and how they get impacted by mantras, by temples, by, you know, doing yogasanas. And every, all our sciences and all our rituals are based on this subtle understanding of prana and its many forms. So that is the fundamental understanding of prana. I hope that made things a little easier to follow. <laughs> yes, thank you. I just want people to be able to track as you explain now how the mantra affects the prana and the apana in the body. So uh, the mantra om, in the most, what is om? So om, as well as many other mantras, are not man-made. These are sounds that are revealed in deep states of meditation. So if we are able to go into those deep states of meditation, when there's utter silence within, we will hear the reverberation of Om. That's what it is. So that is the primordial sound from which life began. That's why Om is so fundamental. And Om is so relatable to everybody because it's not a religious symbol. It is the foundational, primordial sound from which life evolved. So that's Om. It's not a man-made or man-created sound. Now, typically when Om has to be uttered, so anything that is revealed, the minute we give it a voice, uh, its impact is lesser because we are attaching a human version of Om. So the Om that you can hear in meditation would be slightly different from the Om that we utter. And within that, we have two variations, keeping in mind people's vibrational capacity. So those who can operate at a higher vibrational capacity, which simply means from the higher chakras of the chest and above, can simply chant Om with two sounds of O and M. So when you say you will experience reverberations in the chest. And then when you say the reverberations are further in the throat and the higher region of your head. So you just need to utter it and you will experience these vibrations. So OM with just O and N works on the higher chakras, which means it pulls prana towards the higher parts of the body. Now, if you are a woman of menstrual age, then every month it is required that prana travels to the lower parts of the body and nourishes your lower chakras because you need to function, your reproductive organs need to function as it should. So for you, the slightly modified version of this would be to begin with the R sound, which is from the navel. So your reverberations start from your lower abdomen and navel. Something like this. I'm not perfect at it, but let me try. So it's something like. 
So you begin with that ah sound. So it's not the ah which comes from the throat. It's the ah which comes from a deeper space, from your stomach. So that's a very powerful sound too. Mm -hmm. And that is when you sort of balance the effect of OM and it is then suitable also for women of menstrual age. If women of menstrual age chant the OM without the ah sound, if they do it regularly, then eventually prana will be insufficient. The prana going to the ovaries will be insufficient and that could lead to ovarian disorders. PCOD is just one of them. So with mantras, we have to be so careful because they actually impact the body in very specific ways. So for women of menstrual age, the mantras which channelize prana towards the lower chakras are better, but even those should not be chanted during menstruation. So that's a very, very strict rule. And even in general, mantras are never to be uttered without initiation by a guru. And the reason for that is each of us have a different vibrational capacity. And uh, it takes a guru to identify that and know what suits us. And a guru sees us not as, you know, me as Sinu and you as Tatiana, they see us as the soul, as the Atma. And they understand at which point in its journey is this Atma. And for this Atma to walk towards spiritual liberation, what does it require? And accordingly, they prescribe the mantra. So it is so customized for every soul. And that is why it should not be randomly picked and uh, chanted. So I hope I gave some clarity about the question that you asked. Oh, fantastic. No, I, I love that. Thank you so much. And you're right. It, it is it is critical, actually. You know, it's it sort of be beyond important. It's critical. And I, and I think we, in the West particularly, uh, misunderstand that the transmission uh, is really critical, as you just explained, because it's, it it acts on a vibration. It's a frequency, and, and not everyone's a match for the same thing. Which uh, sometimes in certain practices, uh, yoga practices uh, here in the West, people can actually have negative reactions uh, in in the class. You know, going into a session because the teacher's just kind of uttering it randomly. Okay, here's the mantra, and not everybody's able to pronounce it. You can actually. Sure witness around you right people have I've witnessed people saying a kundalini uh, as taught by Yogi Bhajan as, a, as an example so coming back to this point of, of mantra it was so interesting in your book I I've had it I got your book earlier this year before I attended your your sort of mini workshop that day which was really really enlightening and since then I've had three periods <laughs> and I've read and I was reading the book as well and so I thought okay well before we speak to each other I'm going to test out some of these um you know I'm not going to call them theories I'm going to say they're applications um the wisdom it's really it's wisdom is what it is and so because what so I'm I'm almost 50 I'm definitely in a perimenopausal phase of my menstrual cycle. And for the last several years, I have been experiencing those changes in my body. And they've been presenting in things like migraines once a month. I So I would know, my okay, I'm getting my period tomorrow. I, I would get such a bad migraine that I would have to lay on the bed. I try not to take medication, but they're like, you know, ibuprofen or whatever. But there's some days I've really had to take something like a Tylenol or a Panadol or whatever. And a part of that was also that I was maintaining my practice, my spiritual practice. I had never been told by anybody, except when I'm in India or Nepal, you cannot go into the temple if you are, you know, menstruating. And, and nobody ever gave me an explanation for why. Also, it was mostly men who were telling me this. And so I, I just thought, what up? <laughs> you know what man. the heck like that's such a man thing to say like mm, you know you know not letting me into the temple what do you know that's going on with my body and so I I did and I'm going to have you explain what some of the things I've just mentioned in a minute so I did you know decided well I'm not going to do my my practice during that five-day period and what okay and I've got to say 
I have not had, and I even said to my husband, I didn't get a, the last three months. I have not had a migraine leading into my period. I didn't, I intentionally, I normally take a bath. I didn't take a bath. I didn't, I mean, I'm still showered. I'm a Westerner. I wasn't going to sleep on the floor and I wasn't going to not shower. <laughs> Um, but it's still I, a big improvement but it was <laughs> it's a, a huge improvement yeah massive so I didn't have a hot long bath that I would normally do because I felt achy and I reacted my body wanted to submerge in water uh I didn't do my practice over during that four or five day period I I totally refrained uh, from going to my sacred space I have a, a an altar space and I didn't chant mantra and also at the same time I I was I started to actually um, introduce uh, sh shilajit into my diet as well following more of an Ayurvedic diet as well because I was noticing some other shifts and the shilajit that I'm taking is a very pure source um, and it is from from India and anyway so those in combination uh the last three months I've got to say have been awesome I've had no side effects I've felt I have no, no lower back pain I've had no terror like headaches I it's just it's just can just carry on so it's now <laughs> can well. you please explain how these things <laughs> let, let's try like let's try to break it down so let's maybe begin with you've already shared about mantra uh, perhaps yeah, I I, I want to I want to take a moment, Tatiana, to just appreciate what you did, because this is what I always tell women. Don't believe anything, not even what I write, but test it, try it, know it for yourself. And then you can look at the intellectual bit of, oh, how does this happen or how does that happen? But we all have this tendency to just dismiss something because it is outside our comfort zone. And like you said, just because a man says, we tend to think, oh, they are so patriarchal, so I'm not yeah. going to. And it's, and it's not that you cannot enter the temple. It's rather that it's you should not enter, as in it is going to impact you. It may impact the deity, but there are some rituals and we can fix that. But the way it impacts you, we can't. There are many times where that can't even be reversed and women have to finally remove the uterus. That's how serious it can be. And I will explain that in a bit. But I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for uh, making this effort and sharing the huge difference that it makes. It's simple little things, right? And oh, you, you're just awesome. free of migraines and backaches. And uh, that's when we realize that, oh, this is how we're supposed to menstruate. We're not supposed to have these aches and pains. <laughs> Yeah, it was remarkable. Um, yeah, so, so let me start with, with temples because, you know, yeah. even you don't even have to have gone to India or Bhutan, Nepal, Tibet, or even Bali, which is predominantly Hindu, where you can be experiencing on an energetic level what is happening. And you have, you also share a, a great, some stories in here of your own personal experience in your book. Uh, so let's start with temples. Why uh, is it uh, recommended not to go into the temple? So that rule is very similar to what we've understood for mantras. So um, in the Hindu tradition, every ritual is about playing with your prana. Either you turn it upwards or you channelize it down towards the lower chakras. And either we do that with mantras or we do that with certain rituals or we do that with different types of temples. So there are temples like temples of the goddess where prana would primarily be channelized towards your reproductive organs. So these are fertility goddesses and uh, they work to heal women from various menstrual and reproductive issues. And then there are temples where the, the sankalp, the intention is for spiritual liberation or moksha. Those are temples of Shiva where prana is just forcibly turned upwards, whether you like it or not, right? So yeah. these are just two extreme um, examples I have given of temples. There are temples that will work on any one of the chakras or on multiple chakras based on the way it is designed. But whatever the nature of it, this much is for sure that it will impact your prana. Now, if you are menstruating, however, the impact is on your prana, it will affect your period. If it, if, it, if it impacts your prana in such a way that it triggers the lower chakras, you will bleed more. So I know instances of women who've gone to a temple, their period started unexpectedly. And that's mostly because, you know, suddenly the prana is so high that the body tries to balance it by starting your menstruation. 
Mm. If you go to, uh, this has happened to several women in Shiva temples because suddenly prana is pulled up towards your higher chakras. And as a female form, your body tries to balance it by starting the gravitational pull, you know, pulling it back down. And that's when your period starts unexpectedly. When this happens, often women feel awkward to, you know, suddenly declare that, hey, I've got my period and I've got to step out. So they continue to remain in that space. And I know the testimonial of at least four to five women who have bled nonstop for two to three months because of this. They just bled and bled like a tap that was open. No doctor could fix their problem. And a couple of them had to finally get the uterus removed. That's how serious it is. That is why they tell you in such a strict manner. (laughs) That's why it's, you know, not a joke. They they try to put in you the fear of God, the fear of everything possible, because it's not a joke. It's about protecting your health. So last October, September, October, I was in Nepal and my period was meant to come the next week. I was going to be there for three weeks and I was going on a spiritual journey and I was a bit worried about getting my period during the middle of this because we were going to be up high in the mountains and and hygiene was what came to mind it wasn't it wasn't the spiritual aspect it was oh I'm going to be I won't have access to uh running water all the time or you know western toilets this is what went through my mind uh and when I arrived in Kathmandu uh that first morning I went to a Mahankala temple my Mahankala I'm sure you familiar is is the wrathful form of Shiva and so the energy was very strong and I went there and uh, that's part of, he is a deity in the tradition, the shamanic practice that we uh, work with. And, and so it was, it was quite intense. I, I didn't really think much of it because I had not had this education. This, I didn't have this understanding of the wisdom that, that you've shared with me. And I went back uh, to the hotel and, oh my God, I mean, I really got, had a full on, like you just like really heavy yeah. period, much heavier than uh, than than is usual for me and uh, and it, weirdly I was relieved because I thought oh thank god I've had it before I'm going up into the mountains but it was quite intense and quite quite full-on and I actually then really needed to rest and we were we were supposed yes. to be spending a few days in Kathmandu to rest before going up into the mountains uh, this we, is perfect we, because you have an example for everything I'm saying yeah yeah <laughs> and, and I also understand it. like I understand yes, why I wanted to have you on as a yes. guest because I actually yes. I get what you're talking about in your book and yeah. I and as a westerner I can actually share these experiences with you to to my audience as well like yeah real stuff (laughs) you know it's such a blessing that this did not happen to you while you were in the temple because you would not have thought of leaving and that would have really led you to have a very very severe menstrual problem you would it was really a blessing of Mahakala himself that he sent you away and then the period started yeah yeah in retrospect (laughs) 100 I I was like oh wow like it really, it yeah. really, it was only later did I think about it. And then I was like, cause there was a, a woman with me um, that I didn't, that I met who was coming on the pilgrimage and she got her period in the mountains and, and she was in some serious discomfort. And I was, I was observing her, but also from, from my Western mind, just thinking, oh my gosh, poor thing. Like, oh, she's without this and without that. But it didn't occur to me that perhaps energetically we were traveling up the mountain, oh, yes. mountain shamans, yes. other things were happening to yes. her body. So anyway, please continue explaining. It's it's uh, so interesting. It's so important because this is what we need to realize how a female body is energetically different from a male body. Now, we are so sensitive. The rules are in place not because we don't have the right to perform some things or because, oh, we are not good at it. It's because it is so easy for these things to happen to a woman's body when compared to a man's body. Men have to do years of yoga and meditation to have an equivalent amount of sensitivity as a woman's body does just by virtue of the fact that we menstruate. (laughs) Just that gives us the equivalent ability of a yogi. And that means when we go into these spaces which are powerful centers that turn prana towards the higher chakras, it happens very quickly for us. 
And then the body's natural intelligence, thankfully, the body's natural intelligence kicks in and says, no, you're not yet ready to leave the body. Stay within and pulls it in the opposite direction downwards. And that's when your period starts much before time. And if this happens, please leave that space. Do not remain in any consecrated space when this happens because you will just bleed and bleed continuously. And this might be an irreversible problem, something you can't even fix. The other thing that happens is that if the period does not start immediately, and if it is a temple, which is a mokshadham, mokshadham means primarily a place which is meant to take you towards moksha. And what does moksha mean? It means that your prana leaves the body through the higher chakras. To make that happen, prana will turn up. And if this happens, and if you do this during your period, one end is that you could bleed excessively. But the other thing that could happen is that your body's gravitational force, the downward moving apana, could invert itself. And it will start turning upwards. What happens if gravity turns up? Then the blood also turns up and gets deposited in higher regions of your body and that is what is endometriosis. Mm -hmm. So many people are suffering from endometriosis and we have no idea why it happens. It is happening because the body's gravitational force has turned its direction. This could also happen if we do some practices that puts our body against gravity time and again when we menstruate. For example, there is a study which shows that US female pilots fighter pilots, majority of them have endometriosis and they consider it as normal. They don't realize it's because their body is constantly against gravity. So then the gravitational force turns upward. Or if you are a gymnast and if you perform inversions, even if it is yoga-based inversions during menstruation, it will turn the apana upward and eventually it will result in endometriosis. So these are some really dangerous consequences of not following these rules that have been put in place for generations and none of it is superstition the reason why it is it seems so strict is because they knew that the consequences for women is very very serious and we may have forgotten and lost the ability to speak this language of science because our country was colonized and invaded and we had long periods where our knowledge systems were suppressed and called pseudoscience or called alternative. So we lost that language for long periods of time. So as an alternative, our ancestors who knew this through experience said, well, you're impure or God does not like it, whatever shortcut method works. <laughs> but, the, but the intention was somehow keep menstruating women away from consecrated spaces because that's going to badly affect their period, the short term and long term. So yeah. that's something. And this is something I wouldn't uh, invite women to try and experiment and then learn. There are enough testimonials in the book and you have also shared your own experience. So learn this from others' experience. <laughs> yeah. This is something you mustn't try to experiment and uh, you know do for your own sake. <laughs> Yes, and it's interesting because uh, while I was reading the book and understanding that there, there there's a strong focus here on, you know, in India and people who go to temples. What about Western women who who don't go to temples? And and I know you give examples of sporting women. So maybe let's talk about that for a little bit because I also found that really interesting. Then for female sports, you know, for, for sports women who are suppressing their periods because they need to compete in an event and then all these other things are happening. I think this is a fascinating read for women regardless of your spiritual traditions uh, or where you live in the world because we all menstruate and things we're all experiencing something uh, uh you know negative i would say because as as you talk about in the book these things are becoming so common that it's sort of just like oh that's how it is like experiencing lower back pain or getting you know migraines or 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 much worse things you know endometriosis or other things like this so can you explain how, what's happening here and how how can a woman learn to work with her cycle you know particularly from a, maybe a more western view yeah that's a, a good question and the reason we have so many rules in the hindu tradition is because life revolved around consecrated spaces and rituals 
Right. So it became necessary to safeguard women from these during their period. This may not be the case for women who are from a Christian family or a Muslim. There are separate rules for Christians and Muslims, and I have covered that in one chapter. But the fundamental thing to understand is when you menstruate, the body's gravitational pull needs to be downwards. It needs to go towards the earth. And anything that you do to change that, it could simply mean, you know, excessive air travel during your menstruation. That puts your body against gravity. Or if you are swimming during menstruation, water completely blocks prana and turns its direction. So swimming, being underwater during menstruation is one of those things that can badly impact the body's gravity and your period. Uh, doing uh, inversions, whether it is through gymnastics or anything like that could impact your period. Excessive exercise during menstruation now, in Ayurveda, we understand that each of us have a very specific prakriti, body constitution. And based on that, our period would slightly differ. Mm -hmm. But in all cases, if you are menstruating, the vata dosh, which is the force that governs movement, is naturally high in your period. And if you further move excessively, that vata dosh becomes aggravated. And then you have vata-related problems. If you eat food that is very spicy, that is very hard to digest, that's when you have all the stomach cramps and other things because menstruation is a natural detox. This is the time when certain subtle toxins in your body are released. And the lesser the toxins you have, the lesser pain you will experience during your period. The more there are these toxins, either they will be released through your skin in the form of acne or your upper digestive tract uh, will be clogged and then you will have nausea or your lower digestive tract will be in the process of cleansing itself. And that's when you have loose bowel movements and, you know, you have uh, cramps because these are just gastric upsets. So, so much of your period problem is directly related to the lifestyle and the food that you take just before your period, uh, at all times, yes, but at least a week before your period, if you can follow a diet that is easy to digest, easy on your body and facilitates a sort of an internal cleansing, you will observe that your period is naturally pain-free. <laughs> so oh, it's, it's, oh. there are women who you know experience pain for 10, 12 years and just doing these simple measures of a week before their period avoiding food that is difficult to digest, doing a little bit of basic yoga asana, not taking bath and the other things that you said, just makes it easy and possible to have a pain-free period. And this is regardless of which part of the world you are, if you have a female body, this applies to you. Yes. Well, so it's it's a little difficult though if you are a professional athlete, right? A female athlete, because you have to train. I mean, my I thought about when I was reading your book, it was this winter, and I was thinking about my daughter, my 13-year-old daughter, who's a, an alpine ski racer. She uh is now of menstruating age. And I thought, wow, like when you because you you explain, and I'm gonna have you explain it actually, what happens to the body. On a, on a mass level the bone density and what and so could you expand on this the dangers of training pushing the body as a woman when we've got our period sure and let me do this through the language of modern science because i'll have to explain lesser if i begin yeah, yeah. with Ayurveda, for sure, for then sure. i have to start with yeah. the basics thank so, you uh, so in, in the language of modern medicine, we know that the hormone that is fundamental to our menstrual cycles is estrogen and uh, estrogen is what gives our body the strength and the stamina to work. And estrogen is also the hormone which uh, facilitates calcium absorption in our bones. So the strength of our body, of our bones, of our muscle, our energy level, all of this is governed by estrogen. And guess what? During the three or four days of your period, estrogen is at an all-time low. It's flat. So your body's mechanism of handling excessive physical work is at an absolute low. So your bone density is reduced during this time. And at such a time, if you exercise, the chances of having injuries are much higher. 
And that's why modern day sports women usually retire by the age of 35 or just somehow stretch to 40. But it's a, it's a career that's ridden with injuries because they train when they menstruate. In stark contrast to this, if you look at martial arts of the East, the martial art forms in India and in China, there's one rule that they never miss. And that is that women should not train when they menstruate. And as a result, women martial artists continue to be in their top form well into their 70s. Can we even imagine this for a modern day sportswoman? They have so many bone-related injuries by the time they retire from sports and even while they're playing. I know that this requires a massive shift in understanding in the entire system that manages sports, but we have to take a call. We are forcing women to behave as though their bodies are the same as that of men. And the direct effect of that is the injury that the women's bodies are going through. The evidence is out there. Can you think of one sportswoman who, who you know, who's at the, at the peak of her career when she's in the 60s or 70s? I mean, 35, 40, they somehow stretch till that point and then the body just gives up. Early osteoporosis and various other bone-related disorders happen. Because of this excessive training during menstruation, the body's gravitational force, apana, is affected. So they have difficulty conceiving. If they manage to conceive with all the artificial treatment, then they have difficulty in labor. So the body just goes through so much struggle. And all we needed to do was allow three or four days of rest. But we have a system that has, is tailor-made for a man's body. And women have no option but to somehow fit into that, which is not the way it was in the East. And when we train women in martial arts, that is not the way we did it. <laughs> so this is a very important uh, knowledge. And I think at this point, at least, it is up to each individual sportswoman to take that call. Yeah. But if you reach a point where people understand this, and this is something I suggested at the G20, uh, was that systems need to plan tournaments around women's menstrual cycles. Imagine if there are two players and one woman is on her period. She has an obvious disadvantage right from the start. So many women have lost out on medals just because they were on their period that day. So how is that game ever going to be fair? And I'm not even talking here about, you know, how her body would suffer. I'm just talking about the fairness of it. They are not at the same level if one of them is menstruating. So they need to allow perhaps a span of one or two weeks where sportswomen can pick dates based on their period. And during training, at least it should be that option should be available that women can opt out uh, during their period. Because otherwise they have so many injuries that... It's just not worth it. Their body goes through too much suffering for the sake of a medal or a recognition or whatever else it might be. It's a call. At this point, it's a call that individual sportswomen have to take. But hopefully at some time, the system will recognize this as a much needed uh, problem and uh, do something about it. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think of a bit yeah. an international sporting event like the Olympics. Yeah. I mean, where you've got every country pretty much in the world competing and, and when a lot of women and that that would that would literally be impossible right because you and as you say it's up to the individual sports person but it means so much to them because that's what they're excelling at in in their life at that time so I, I think just you know education around um how to care for themselves is definitely something that is is critical and that's needed even know. if they they can't they can't opt out of an event for obvious reasons at least while training if they avoid practice during menstruation they, the chances of injury would be that much lesser Mm. Uh, you can you can uh, you can permit your body to do that extra work maybe on those rare occasions where it's an event and you can't say no but training training is something that uh, it's in a smaller group and you and your coach and your team should be able to take that call so at least let it begin with that that's a start is what I would say 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. That's good advice. Uh, so, so just coming back to the point of Ayurveda, let's just explain the doshas, the uh, pita, kapha, vata. Uh, I, I'm predominantly pita. So, if you could uh, break down the the vata, pita, and kapha um, doshas for us, please, and how a woman might be experiencing her period differently based on her constitution. So, the three doshas basically refer to three forces within the body which govern all the functions within the body. So one of them is called Vata Dosh, which governs all the movements within the body. So the hormones have to move from the brain to the ovaries, that's governed by Vata. The physical movement, uh, and therefore the management of your entire skeletal system, governed by Vata Dosha. The movement of food, the movement of waste, all kinds of movement in the body is covered by vata dosh. Now menstruation is the movement of blood out of the body. So menstruation is a time when vata dosha is higher than usual. So when vata is like that, we have to be very careful to not aggravate it further. If you are a person who by nature has a vata dominant prakriti, vata dominant constitution, then your period will have the following signs. The color of the blood, it would be dark brownish, almost like a coffee brown in color. You are more likely to feel anxious, restless, nervous during your period. The way you talk, you will talk really fast because you can't really slow down because vata is movement and movement means that you have to make everything happen really fast. (laughs) (laughs) People with vata dosh tend to talk really, really fast because they are like the wind. They have to keep moving. (laughs) So if you talk fast, that's a way for you to know that you have a vata prakriti. So your blood flow will be scanty. You may bleed just for about one or two days. Maximum, you'll stretch to three. The chances of spotting just before your period is higher in vata-dominant women. So these are the ways in which you can know that, oh, this period, my vata is high. Now, if you had food which tends to aggravate vata, for example, all kinds of cold food, frozen food, ice creams, uh, There was this time where I didn't know my period had started and I was enjoying an ice cream. And that month, my blood had all the signs of vata dosha. It was dark brown. It was scanty. The mood was more anxious. So that's how you know that, okay, this month vata is aggravated. So I need to consume food that is more nourishing for vata. So warm, mushy food is what will uh, be better, will be nicer for vata. Vata is like the wind. It's drying so you need to have a little bit of oily element and warm uh, warmth in the food that you eat to balance the the dry and the cold nature of the wind of vata so mm. that's one type the second type which is your constitution and mine <laughs> is pitta pitta dosha uh, pitta means fire the internal agni the internal fire so people who have Pitta, they generally communi- are said to communicate well. <laughs> um, they have natural leadership qualities. Uh, they, pitta is, so fire is not just a digestive fire, it is a fire of intelligence also. So the capacity to understand complex matters and break it down into digestible bits and communicate in an easy to understand manner. These are all qualities of uh, Pitta people. So most leaders, most good communicators will have that quality of pitta without which it can't really happen. So when it comes to menstruation, if your pitta is aggravated, so pitta is also slightly high naturally during the period, along with vata, pitta is also high because fire is a component of the blood as well. So anything to do with the blood will mean that pitta is slightly higher. So the color of the blood will be bright red. This is also the color of a normal healthy period. The color blood has to be bright red. In Vata, remember, it was coffee brown. Here it is bright red. And the bleeding is slightly more because it's a very hot period. You're full of fire, right? So the bleeding is a little more. You bleed for five days, up around five days. And uh, you could have clots if it is very high bleeding. 
emotionally, one of the prominent signs is that you lose your temper. <laughs> so PMS for you is all about anger. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, definitely, I definitely can relate to that. Oh my gosh. But not the yes, last for, three months. Oh my gosh. Not no. the last three months, yes. <laughs> I know. So when I began to understand that, I realized that the minute you begin to lose your temper, it's a sign that, oh, Pitta is rising. And PMS is that time when Pitta rises. So the hunger pangs, that tendency to want junk food, you know, fried chips and chocolates, all that is a pitta aggravation. So the answer is not in feeding yourself all of that, but in countering that with food that is cooling, that is stabilizing. So cucumber, a lot of uh, watermelon and any other fruits which are cooling in nature should be had if you are the pitta type. A normal period when even if you are the pitta type like both of us are, it does not have to mean that you have a fight a day before your period. It does not have to mean that. <laughs> uh, it, it can be a more balanced form of a pitta. So that's one sign you need to watch out for. If these are the signs and the symptoms, especially your mood, if it is uh, angry and if you feel hot and exhausted, that means pitta is high. So please consume food that is cooling in nature, especially a week before your period. Alcohol, cigarettes, all of these tend to aggravate pitta. Non-vegetarian food aggravates pitta. Mm -hmm. So just a week before your period, if you can consume things that are easier on your system, are more cooling, then you will see that your period will be different. right? And the third type is the kapha. Kapha people are generally very friendly. Uh, they are the easiest friends to uh, be around. Very loving, very outgoing personalities. And uh, for them, menstruation is of a moderate sort. So the color of the blood would be slightly pinkish. It's not a dark brown. It's not a bright red. It's slightly a lighter red. And the tendency of having white discharge related problems or excessive clots is more with kapha. Kapha is literally the word in Indian language for phlegm. Mm. So when we talk about people with kapha, they very often tend to have uh, breathing related issues, phlegm related issues, sinus related problems, because that is their prakriti. And when they menstruate, if kapha is high, then the bleeding will also, the blood will also have a lot of clots. Emotionally, if kapha is not balanced, then during your period, you will feel lethargic, you will feel lazy, and you will feel depressed. So there are some women who get into this mode of lack of self-worth. And that becomes so prominent during their period. And that's actually because the kapha is imbalanced. So if you eat a lot of stale food, a lot of oily food, a lot of junk food, then that can cause a kapha imbalance. So for kapha type women, it's important that they include some form of exercise during the whole month, not during their period, but during the rest of the month because their body needs exercise. They don't have fire to balance the heaviness of kapha. So they need to generate that fire so that the heaviness of kapha is reduced and they don't go into a depressive mode during their period. So this is these are the three types. And even physically, you know, we can see a difference. If someone is vata dominant, they would be very skinny. Their body type is uh, wiry in nature. They don't put on weight that easily. If they are of the pitta type, then it's a moderate athletic sort of a body. If they are the kapha type, they are a little shorter and plumper. Uh, stout and uh, you know they have that physical strength and stamina mm -hmm. so of course none of us are purely vata pitta or kapha and we are all a combination of two or three of these doshas but we will see the characteristics of these play out in our personality and especially during our period so if you're able to look at these signs when we menstruate we will know what our body is going through at that time and how to balance it and if you don't balance it, that same problem becomes a disease. So if vata is aggravated month after month, you could reach a stage where you have amenorrhea, that is delayed or missed periods. Mm -hmm. If pitta is aggravated month after month, it could result in um, heavy menstrual bleeding, menorrhagia. 
If kapha is aggravated month after month, it could result in white discharge related or other such problems. So each of these things are indicators for us to know where it could lead and take measures to prevent it from turning into a full-fledged disorder. Yes, no, it, it is really important for us to understand our constitution because there's so much that can be learned uh, from, from that and understanding of basically how to make life's very simple lifestyle adjustments. I wanted to ask you about panchakarma uh, because I thought that was so interesting that our menstrual cycles, we naturally go into this state of panchakarma. So can you explain what is panchakarma? What's happening during during this phase? And what do, how come, like, what do men have to do to achieve this as well? The most common thing you'll hear about menstruation in India is that they say, well, it removes impurities from the body. And for a long time, I wondered, what do you mean by impurities in the body? Are you talking about chemicals? Are you talking about toxins? And that's when I understood that Ayurveda has this understanding of subtle internal toxins, which they call as ama, A-M-A, ama. What is ama? Any food that we eat, a portion of it we know is digested. The nutrients we know are absorbed. And then there is a portion that goes into the intestines and it is excreted. But if the food we consume is such that majority of it is hard to digest. So if you eat fruits, most of it is absorbed, assimilated, and very, you know, the fibrous part comes out. But if you eat primarily meat, then what happens is that a large portion of this food simply sits and rots in the intestine because your body is not able to digest it. The human body is not made for handling meat. So our body is not able to digest it. And when it rots, it releases certain subtle toxins. And that is what we call as ama. So the more there is ama in your body, it collects in different parts of the body and leads to all kinds of diseases. We, we, you know, know this externally as cholesterol. We say there's too much cholesterol in the blood and therefore the person is, has a tendency for heart disease. So whether it is diabetes or high blood pressure or heart attacks, all of this we understand as because there is excess ama in the body, which is not being cleansed. And uh, when ama is very high, it also penetrates the finest tissue layer, which is the reproductive tissue layer. So in Ayurveda, we talk about seven tissue layers. And the last of these layers is the reproductive layer. If ama is so high that it penetrates and reaches and affects the tissue layer, which is the reproductive tissue layer, it impacts fertility. So one of the popular treatments for infertility is to go through a detox. So <laughs> panchakarma is Ayurveda's equivalent of a detox. And uh, pancha means five and karma means action. So these are five forms of actions that forcibly remove ama from different parts of your body. So they would make you vomit. So that way you remove ama from the upper digestive tract. They do an enema and remove ama from the lower digestive tract. They do certain massages and remove ama from the skin. Mm -hmm. So like this, there are five ways in which ama is forced or pushed out of your body. And this is a treatment for infertility. The minute couples go through this treatment, their chances of um, you know, conceiving suddenly goes up because they are, the, the seventh tissue layer, which is your reproductive tissue layer, was being uh, blocked by excess ama, which has now been released. Right Now, how does this connect to menstruation? The beauty of the way nature has made women is that because our bodies are designed to create life, it is important that our seventh tissue layer is not blocked by ama. So nature gives us a natural detox every month and pushes out ama from our body month after month, just preparing the womb. And how does it push this out? Just like panchakarma pushes ama from five parts of the body. If we have too much ama, we will experience it as different period problems. You will experience nausea if you have ama in your upper digestive tract. You will experience loose bowel movements if you have ama in your lower digestive tract. Acne and skin breakouts if you have ama in your skin. So just like panchakarma, 
menstruation pushes ama out of your body so we keep blaming the period but actually the period is doing us a huge favor and cleansing our system <laughs> men don't have this and if men that's why if you just look at the the rate of lifestyle diseases it's much sooner in men for women it starts only after menopause it starts much earlier in men if they don't do anything to remove ama so in the indian system that is why yoga was such a must for men because yoga balances all the doshas and helps to gently improve the metabolism and push out ama from time to time if men don't do that the chances of them having lifestyle diseases much earlier than women is high and that is what we see around the world right it's so interesting i mean that that was just a, a you know real eye opener when i read that part i told my husband that i was like mm, this is why men die before women <laughs> yes it i mean it's not one of but but you know i know you <laughs> weren't saying it but I, but it's in your book there's a few very interesting facts statistically but you know they're science fact uh about lifestyle factors and how they affect men and women uh and and how it's directly linked to to the menstrual cycle so it, it's so interesting i mean I, I think everybody should should buy your book you know definitely women and i think it'd be an eye-opener for men as well it's just been so fascinating and is there anything else you, you think is important for people to know about your book or you've got i know you've got courses coming up as well or talks people can join talks as well so if you could just share you know some about that that would be great thank you it's so kind of you to uh, have me on this uh, platform and to share this with others uh, yes, uh, the book Ruthu Vidya is available worldwide. You can just search on Amazon. It's available. The ebook is also available on Kindle and iBooks and Google. Uh, we also have an online course that is about 25 plus hours of lectures, uh, lectures by me in English, pre-recorded lectures. And that is available on uh, the Center for Indic Studies, the website of the Center for Indic Studies. You can just look up Ruthu Vidya course. It's available. We are, of course, starting, we've started a channel for uh, talks on this in the Indian regional languages. So I've written this book for Indians, but I've written it in English. So uh, a lot of uh, people were asking me to do it in the regional languages. So that is something we have uh, just started. But uh, if I know that a lot of things that we discussed today were starting points for those who probably never heard of this before. So um, whether or not you read the book, if you prefer to listen to more of this, there is the course. And there are also several talks already available um, about the same topic by me on different um, uh, channels on YouTube. So you can just Google my name or Ruthu Vidya and you can listen to those talks as well. Basically, everything that I've written in the book, I've already spoken about it. And so it's it's not necessary that you must buy the book. And the mm -hmm. reason why, I, you know, it, this is not a, a commercial venture for me. It's about sharing this knowledge and going back to the way of our ancestors. And across the world, across the world, all Native people who connected with Mother Nature had very similar practices. This is something all women should know. This is not specific to the Hindus, you know, whoever we call as pagans, whoever we refer to as native people of indigenous people of indigenous origin, they all had very similar practices. And that is because we knew how to tune in to the subtler elements of life. And when the whole you know, planned attack happened on folk healers. And when thousands of women were burnt, calling them witches, that is when the shift began to happen. Everything that we knew, our ancestors knew, was called pseudoscience. And then we forced this modern outlook, which was based on destroying nature. It was based on controlling, manipulating nature just for economic profit. And that's why the sports and our work systems, all of it is based on that. So this book is about going back to the way as humans, we were meant to live, we were meant to be. And therefore it's relevant for everybody across the world. It's, it's, it's almost a choice you have to make in the way you want to live life. And this is just one of those things that will help you do it. So. Uh, 
That's the intent with which this book was written and put out there. And I hope that at some point, people from across the world, all cultures from across different cultures start looking into these practices within their own culture, within their own traditions and revive it. Because at this point, we all refer to it as taboos. Mm -hmm. Taboo is a very negative word. This is not the word in, uh, in any regional language. <laughs> we just call them as cultural practice. The word mm -hmm. taboo came from the same people who refer to our practices as pseudoscience. So we need to make that shift. We need to learn this through practice, through experience, and uh, just connect back to nature. It's such a healing process. It's not for anyone else. It's not to prove a narrative. It's not to make a point. It's for our own healing. And that's something you have experienced, I think, by experimenting with this book. Yes. And that's the way to go about this book. Try it. Try everything that's written here. And if it works, accept it. If it doesn't, keep looking <laughs> so, thank, well, you. thank you thank you for inviting me no you are welcome thank you thank you very much uh so if you were interested in buying a sinu's book so it is ritu vidya and that is spelled r t u vidya v i d y a ancient science behind menstrual practices by sinu joseph and Sinu, you also have the website mitrispeaks.org, right? So, and that's spelled M-Y-T-R-I-S-T-H-R-I. Yes, ah. M-Y-T-H. So, you know, it's easiest if you just Google my name. So all of these okay. things would so appear. So, all right. Yes. Well, I will. S-I-N-U, <laughs> that's easier. <laughs> I also include um, everything on the show notes page uh, for this episode on my website as well, theconsciousbook.com. Yeah, so... Oh, good. So amazing. Thank you very, very much. And Thank this you. was an enlightening conversation. I hope people enjoyed it and uh, a wonderful read. So thank you very, very much. It's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Have a good